With all that said, open your Bibles with me to Joel chapter 2. Last week we started the second one of our minor prophets. Uh, We are about halfway through, 2 out of 12. We will probably get through them this year. That is my hope and goal. We'll see how that is. Matthew was only three years, but this this will move a little faster. Uh, Joel opens up, and we're only going to look at it in two weeks, but but Joel opens up fairly simply around a central theme of the day of the Lord. Um, But what Joel did, particularly in chapter one, was take that specific historical incidence of this infestation of locusts that had decimated and devastated the land, and he uses that to point to what is coming. He says, this event, terrible and tragic as it is, should shake you people out of your spiritual slumber and point you to the fact that if you don't deal with your sin, something worse is coming. That God takes the sins of his people seriously. And Joel, we know particularly, writes likely very, very early in the writing prophets. He writes to the southern kingdom. He writts in and around Jerusalem. So it's a a targeted, directed audience. It's a people who will kind of come back and fade away over and over in these cycles through their history. Uh, But he uses this idea of a current event to point to what is coming. And Joel, like I said, centers around the theme of the day of the Lord. And last week, what we looked at was the current crisis among the people, that plague of locusts that needed to wake them up and kind of shake off the spiritual callousness that had formed around their hearts. And this week, we're going to look forward, and we're going to do chapters 2 and chapter 3, and we're going to look at the coming crisis. We're going to move from that current setting, and we're going to follow with Joel as he points forward to what is coming beyond that. So if you're not there already, find your way to Joel chapter 2. I'm going to read the first three verses to set the stage for where we're going. Joel chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, this is what God's word says. Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness, there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. Their like has never been seen before, nor will again after them. Through the years of all generations, fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, as we come once again to books that we are not all that familiar with, that we don't typically spend much time in, we ask uh, that you would be gracious, that you would open our eyes so that we might behold wonderful things from your word. We pray that you wouldn't just help us see and read and understand new things, but we pray that you would help us to see clearly, that you would remove distractions, that you would remove the blindness and the callousness that sin brings into our lives, that you would make us sensitive to what you have to say. Open our eyes, unstop our ears, soften our hearts so that we might behold the wonder of who you are. And then God, in your mercy, we ask that you would help us to respond rightly to that, that you would make us a people who are obedient to you. We need your help in every part of that. And so we ask in Christ's name. Amen. This week, Brandy and I celebrated our 21st anniversary. And uh, we don't often get the chance to go out and have a nice dinner, but we went out to the Odyssey. And uh, the first thing that we got was like this charcuterie appetizer thing. And as many of you are familiar with, uh, the higher the price in the restaurant, the smaller the things tend to be. So 
You know, you got the tiny little genetically engineered pickles and the tiny little cheeses and all that stuff. Regular sized grapes, they haven't figured out how to shrink those yet, I guess. But it, it was good, it wasn't much. Um, but again, there's kind of that idea uh, that the more you put into something, especially when it comes to the restaurant scene, uh, that an expensive fancy meal means a $40 beautifully decorated single bite of food. Um, <laughs> And I tell you that today uh, because you're going to get a lot. And at the end of the day, the danger is you feel like, well, we didn't get much. Uh, that I spent a long time doing things in Joel chapter 2 and chapter 3. And the sermon is long enough. It's always long enough. I know. Uh, but then you come to the end of it and you say, well, we didn't really go as deep as I want to into these things. And I become the $40 bite of something that you think there should be more of. Um, and in a sense, you're right. If Joel was all that we were doing, if we were spending a significant amount of time in Joel and then none of the other minor prophets, I would spend a couple of weeks going through chapter two and a couple of weeks going through chapter three. There is that much that we could. There is depth. There is importance. There are, there are ties that go all over your Bibles in these chapters. But we are not just going through Joel. We're moving through the minor prophets. And one of the great things about that is we'll see these themes picked up again and again and again. Uh, not only in the minor prophets, but in the major prophets that we'll tie to. In the law, in the New Testament. So we're going to be able to weave these things together. Today we are going to do what Joel does. And that is to set the stage. Remember, Joel happens early. And what he does is he sets the stage for this idea of the day of the Lord. And then prophet after prophet behind him begins to take that theme and fill in bits and pieces and details and give clarity and definition to what he introduced. So today, broad themes. We're going to move quickly. And if I lose you, I deeply apologize. That is my fault. It is not Joel's fault. But what we're going to see is Joel opened up chapter two and chapter three, and he's going to begin to point forward. We saw what happened. And now he's going to use that idea of the theme of the day of the Lord, and he's going to open it up in two more kind of elements, one of those being an imminent day of the Lord, a day of the Lord that is coming, that is close at hand for these particular people. The locusts are now, but there is a judgment that is coming that is right at the doorstep is how he pictures it. And then he's going to look beyond that. He's going to look to an ultimate day of the Lord. So there's an imminent day of the Lord. And then there is a coming ultimate or final day of the Lord that he also points to. And where those two come together can be a little bit blurry, but that's all right. By God's grace, we're going to get through this. So let's open up chapter two. And first of all, we're going to look at that imminent day of the Lord. And as we open up chapter two together, uh, we're going to see that there's a new threat. This time it's not locusts. This time uh, the threat is a particular people who are going to come into the land. Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound the alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. Locusts are here. And if you think that's bad, there is something much greater that is coming. The day of the Lord is coming. It is near. This idea of being close at hand, it's got that same urgency of the preaching of John the Baptist and Jesus Christ, where he talks about the kingdom being at hand. There's this sense of imminence, this idea that it's ready to break in at any moment. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. And again, that sounds like it's just kind of dreary and scary, and it is that. But again, remember, as we've gone through Matthew, the idea of darkness and gloom and this kind of oppressive darkness is often associated not with the absence of God, but with the presence of God in judgment. The idea that God sometimes in his majesty, in his weightiness, in his greatness, brings along with him darkness, particularly as it comes to judgment. All through Joel 2 and Joel 3 and really back to Joel 1 was the idea that God is in all of this. 
This is his day. This is his judgment. And this is, I think, one of those other subtle reminders that God is involved in every piece and every part of this. He says, like blackness, there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. Their like has never been seen before, nor will be again after them through the years of all generations. Remember that call from chapter one. Hey, wake up, look back. Has anything like this ever happened in Israel? This locust plague, have you ever seen the land devastated like you have seen this? It's a unique time, and now he points to something else that is coming, another unique time when an army is going to encompass and overcome the people of the land. And look at the images he used, fire devouring before them, a flame burning behind them, the land like the Garden of Eden before them, and behind them a desolate wilderness where nothing escapes them, an appearance like horses, like war horses, rumbling chariots, leaping on the tops of mountains, crackling like a flame of fire, devouring the stubble like an army drawn up for battle. And you say, that sounds a lot like the locusts in chapter 1. And that's exactly the point. Those locusts were terrible. And now Joel uses the same images for a human army that will be equally devastating and even more terrifying. Because if an army of bugs is terrifying, a human army without number seeking the destruction of a people would be even more terrifying. And again, if we don't see the, the flip in that metaphor there, we miss the terror that Joel is really trying to bring to the situation. And it's that kind of difficulty, that, that kind of terror that brings the people, hopefully, to fear, that wakes them up, these charging warriors. And everything from verse 6 to verse 9 it talks about an army that the people of Jerusalem are powerless to stop. Walls don't stop them. Armies don't stop them. Organized uh, resistance won't stop them. It's pictured as this unstoppable force that will absolutely overcome and overwhelm the people. Look down at verse 10. The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful. For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Whose army is this? It's the Lord's. See, Joel drives us back over and over to this theme that we cannot escape and that we dare not miss. All of this falls under the sovereign design and power of God. Locusts, they belong to God. They are his locusts that come in and do his bidding. Whether it's Assyria that comes in and devastates the people, whether it's Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon that come in, whether it is this final eschatological judgment, Joel and the prophets continually drive us back to this idea that this is God's doing. Every bit of this is God's doing. And that raises some difficult questions. How can a good and holy God use a sinful people to do his will? We're going to get through the book of Habakkuk where the prophet cries out about that. He says, how can you be silent, Lord, while the wicked overcome the righteous? And the answer is that God is so sovereign, so powerful, that he can use the actions of sinful men to accomplish holy purposes. And I cannot fully explain that kind of wisdom. And yet no part of this falls outside of God's control. So when does this come? There's difficulty there because the people experience what it's like to be overcome by armies, and we'll talk about that in a moment. 
Uh, and yet this points to something unique. So I think what Joel is doing is what the prophets continually do and what he set up the pattern for in chapter 1. This current event in Locust points you toward a coming judgment in the day of the Lord. And should you not listen to this, that coming judgment, armies that you can't imagine, will overcome you in the land, and yet even that will point to something greater, something more final, something more unique that is yet to come. But in light of all of that, what are the people supposed to do? Joel says there's this invading army coming, so what does God ask the people to do? And what we see is a plea for them to repent. Look at verse 12. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Even in the face of judgment, God calls for repentance. Even in the face of perfect justice, God holds out his mercy and says, come. All that is required is repentance, genuine repentance, a heart change. It has to be more than an external show. Rend your hearts, tear your hearts, break your hearts. Don't just tear your garments. Don't just do the outward stuff. And that, again, speaks so clearly to places like Psalm 51, where David says, you know, create in me a clean heart, renew a right spirit within me. Don't cast me away from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Uh, bulls, goats, offerings, that's not what you want or I would bring it. Understand that, that for David's collection of almost unimaginable sins, there was no proper sacrifice that restored after all that. And David says, I've got nothing. I am wholly dependent on your mercy. And that's, that's where the people need to come to. They need to come to the place, like chapter 1 called them, to a mourning of a brokenness over their sin. There's weeping. There's fasting. But those things are only as good as the heart behind them. But when that repentance happens, Joel points them back to the character of God. He says, God is gracious. He's compassionate. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love. And that almost seems out of place to us sometimes in the Old Testament because we don't talk about it, but sometimes subtly in the way that we think, in the way that we preach, in the way that we study, we set up in our minds the idea that God somehow made this huge change in who he was. You have Old Testament God of justice and wrath and floods and sulfur and burning from heaven, right? And then you have New Testament God and New Covenant God in Jesus, who is kindness and mercy. That is an absolutely nonsensical, man-made divide. It's a blasphemous divide, really, because it is the same God. God is unchanging. In him there's no variation, no change, no shifting shadow. God has always been both perfectly just and unimaginably merciful. Moses, from way back in the law, he says, Lord, show me what you're like. Tell me who you are. Show me who you are, and God says, you can't. You can't see it. No man can see me and live, but God tells Moses that what I'll do is I'll, I'll hide you in the cleft of the rock and I'll pass by, and you can essentially kind of see the backside of my glory. And as he does that, when the Lord passes by, in Exodus 34.6, this is what God says about himself. The Lord, the Lord a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Does that sound familiar? 
That's exactly what Joel says. Joel took God's self-revelation and he reminds the people of it. And who knows? Verse 14, who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Joel says, if there's repentance, who knows? God might be merciful and relent. And by the way, God's mercy would be demonstrated in the ability to offer him the sacrifices that he called for again. And I want you to look at that. We're not going to dwell on it today. But who knows whether he might not relent and leave a blessing behind him? At some point, we're going to come to Jonah. And I want you to remember how quickly the Assyrians get this how slowly the Jews do. But there's an urgency here. Joel lays this out, and he says there's a tremendous urgency behind this. Verse 15, blow a trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people. Joel says, get everyone together. This has to be done, and it has to be done now. And look at the extent of it. Assemble the elders, gather the children, even the nursing infants. Old to young and everyone in between, everybody needs to come together and hear this. Uh, The reality is that this message is for everyone. It's not for the spiritual leaders. It's not even just for the adults. Everybody needs to hear this. Sin, repentance, and restoration is a message for all people. And how important is it? Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Okay, so under the law, when you got married, that was a special time. And you got some time off. You got a year away from civic duty and spending time serving in the army. There was a chance to focus on that marriage because that's how important marriage was. And Joel says, this trumps that. You got married? Tough. Come on out. Celebrate your honeymoon by the temple in weeping and mourning over your sin. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests and ministers of the Lord weep. Right between the altar and the doorway to the holy place, let the priests themselves kind of abandon their duty for the moment and bring the people to a place of mourning over their sin and say, let the whole people all collected together say, spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach and a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? When the people come together, when they have torn their hearts and not just their garments, when they have come to the place where they recognize the terror and the tragedy of their sin, here's what they should plead. God, act on our behalf. And they should do that with every expectation that he will. Why? Because why should they uh, say, spare your people, O Lord? First of all, there's the reminder built into this cry that they are his people. See, Israel's existence as a people doesn't hinge on their faithfulness. It hinges on God's faithfulness. They were his covenant people long before Sinai. There were promises made to those people in Abraham hundreds of years before the law came into effect. And the implication is that God will preserve his people even when he will judge their disobedience. And then it says, don't make your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? See, here's the other idea, that God will act for the sake of his name. That God not only rescues and restores a people for their good, although it is for their good, but that God rescues and restores a people to the praise of his glory. That's what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1 at several points, that God has saved us for the praise of his glory. 
God's actions are always what bring him the most glory, whether that is through his just judgment or through his merciful redemption of a sinful people. God does what brings him the most glory because he is jealous for the sake of his own name. And that faithful God, abounding in mercy, has made particular promises to his people. After that plea, Joel reminds him of the promise that is yet to come. When they repent, what should they expect to happen? Verse 18, the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. He answered and said to his people, behold, I am sending you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied, and I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. What they should expect is restoration. Verse 19, he'll restore the grain and the wine and the oil. Verse 22 says that the pastures will be green and the trees will bear fruit. Verse 23 says that the early rain will come, abundant rain. Verse 24, the threshing floors will be full of grain. Vats will overflow with wine and oil. It's this picture of plenty that will be poured out on the land again, and not only physical provision, uh, but they're going to be restored among the nations. The idea that he'll remove the reproach from them, that he'll move the foreigner far from them. Verse 26 says, you'll eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you, and my people shall never again be put to shame. Ultimately, the result is not only physical provision, it's this restoration of the people. It's this drawing them out of their shame and putting them back into a place of relationship with him and honor that goes along with that. But here's here's the great promise. Verse 27, you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel. And that I am the Lord your God, and there is none else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. Why is it that there is coming a time when there will be no more shame among God's people? It's because they will finally understand who he is. God will dwell among them. Lost in the garden. Restored in pictures in the tabernacle and the temple, lost again after the exile, there's a time coming when God will once again dwell among his people and they will know who he is. But again, the challenge here is when does this happen? We bring up a familiar map slide here because we know in part what happened, well, we know historically what happens to these people. We read about armies and invaders and desolation that is to come, and we know that in 722 B.C., everything in that yellow area is absolutely overcome and carried off by Assyria. In fact, more than that, Assyria will come right up to the gates of Jerusalem itself. They will devastate the bulk of this land. But God, in his mercy, spares Judah and Jerusalem and expels Assyria and provides for them abundantly again. And we see a picture of what Joel was talking about. We know that in 586, Nebuchadnezzar and the armies of Babylon will come in and overcome Jerusalem. They'll deport people at several different places. They will ultimately tear down the walls and destroy the temple. But we know that after 70 years, God will allow his people to return to their land, to rebuild the walls in the city, and to rebuild his temple. We see a picture of restoration. We see a picture of what Joel is talking about. The problem is, we don't see all of what Joel has been talking about. There's still reproach among God's people. Look at the news. 
Jerusalem exists as a divided city. The people themselves that are in the land do not know God. By and large, it is a secular place. And so I think the best answer is that Joel does what the prophets continually do. He says, this is what is coming. And every devastation leading up to the final devastation ought to serve as a signpost and a warning to God's people that He is sovereign, that He is Lord, and that the only hope is in repentance and a return to Him. And that's going to be really important because as we come to verse 28, there's another change that happens. In fact, it's so significant that this is where the Hebrew Bible draws a chapter division. They have a whole new chapter that's just for the last part of chapter 2 in our Bible. And what he does is he moves the perspective forward once again. Now it's not just locusts and it's not just an earthly army that's going to come, but now Joel is talking about something final here. There's an ultimate day of the Lord that he's clearly pointing to. And that ultimate day has very unique elements that accompany it, and those start in verse 28. And the first part that we see in 28, really through the end of chapter 2, 28 through 32 in our Bibles, is this rescue that is going to come in those last days. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men will see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. There was a time coming when the spirit of God would be poured out in a unique way. Now, the people were not unfamiliar with the idea of the Spirit of God, but you and I read this, this side of Pentecost, and we say, okay, people of God, Holy Spirit indwelling them. That's not the way it was under the Old Covenant. Quite often in the Old Testament, you read, the Holy Spirit came upon blank, and they did blank. The ministry of the Holy Spirit was to come on someone and empower them or enable them to a particular service. The Holy Spirit comes on Samson, and he does crazy strong things. The Holy Spirit comes on a prophet and they speak for the Lord. The Holy Spirit comes on a king and enables them to rule the people as God would have them rule. But the ministry of the Holy Spirit is not poured out universally on the covenant people of God. And now Joel says that there's a time coming when there's this universal scope to the Holy Spirit. Sons and daughters, old men, young men, even down to the servants all flesh. And again, we say, well, we go to church with spirit-filled people, and usually that's pretty good. Can you imagine everyone being filled with the Spirit? A time and place when the entire culture is saturated by those who know God and are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. You and I lose something of the remarkable nature of this promise. Don't, don't lose the fact that this would have been shocking for Israel to hear. This is absolutely foreign to anything that they would understand. And there are unmistakable signs that continue to accompany this. I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Now, I'm going to come into those very quickly, not because they're not important, but again, because we'll be covering the day of the Lord at several points. Uh, Let me just say that I take these to mean exactly what they sound like. These are not spiritual realities. These are not invisible things that point to uh, some kind of spiritual indication. Everything through Joel is designed to be a very, very clear sign. 
Okay, this is not even to take, so this is not just spiritualizing these physical realities. It's also not looking for a physical fulfillment where there hasn't been. This isn't the four blood moons nonsense of all of those books, okay? The whole point behind all of this is that they're unmistakable, not something maybe loosely attached to a date, not something maybe loosely attached to a spirituality. Uh, the point is that when these things happen, they are clear signs. Like the locusts should have pointed you to God, like the invading army should have pointed you to God. These signs, even in the heavens and on the earth, ought to point you to the fact that the sovereign God of all creation is divinely intervening in human history. There's a time coming when it will be absolutely unmistakable. It's the same language picked up in other prophets. It's the same language picked up by Jesus Christ in Matthew 24. It's the same language that's picked up by John in Revelation. But with this judgment, there's also a promise, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there shall be those who escape as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those with whom those shall be those whom the Lord calls. This is a time of judgment, and judgment like the world has never seen, and yet the offer of salvation is still there. Judah, Jerusalem, the people are going to be devastated and overcome once again. But God will preserve a remnant of his people. That idea of a remnant now picks up and goes all the way through the minor prophets that God does not lose his people. But more than physically survive, they're going to experience salvation, spiritual restoration. And before we turn the page to chapter 3, I'm going to very, very quickly deal with a critical issue of that passage. Because hundreds of years in the future, there are going to be Jews gathered from all over the world in Jerusalem. Not long after the death of Jesus, the Jews are gathered in Jerusalem celebrating the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost. And the apostles are gathered praying and the Holy Spirit comes upon them. And they begin to speak in tongues. And men from nation after nation after nation hear them speaking in their own language and telling of the mighty works of God. And the people are astonished and amazed. And some mock and they say these men are drunk. And Peter gets up and he gives this powerful gospel proclamation but at the very beginning of that is the defense he says these men are not drunk it's not late enough in the day i don't know whether that should have been the initial argument for it but peter says it's still the morning they're not drunk he says no this is what joel talked about and he actually points back and he pulls this section out of joel 2 and he identifies that with what's happening there and people will then look at that and they'll say okay well then the fulfillment of the day of the lord was there in acts chapter 2 that those day of the Lord prophecies are then pointed toward what happens in and around the first century, particularly there, the coming of Pentecost. They look forward a little bit to the destruction of Jerusalem, and they point to that as prior fulfillment. Uh, the problem with that is the apostles don't see it as fully fulfilled then. Years later, Paul will write to the Thessalonians and talk about a day of the Lord that will come. We read that as we started service this morning. Peter himself, years later, will talk about the day of the Lord as something that is yet future. So why in the world does he use Acts 2? Does he point the people back to there? Or does he use Joel 2 when he, when he does that sermon at Pentecost? And the reason is, I think, once again, he uses the prophets exactly as the prophets intended. What did Joel do? Locusts here and now, and that is pointing you to something that is coming. And what does Peter do? These men aren't drunk. There is a spirit that was promised that was going to fall on people in a way that you can't imagine. This is that same spirit. And what was the purpose behind Joel's warning? If you miss this, you will miss something far greater that is coming. What is Peter's call to them? If you miss this spirit, 
If you miss who this Jesus is, there is only judgment that waits for you. And so Peter picks up on the idea of what Joel wrote, and he uses it exactly the same way Joel was. God is faithful. God has done exactly what he said. And one day, God is going to fully do exactly what he says. Every bit and every piece of this is going to come to pass exactly as God said that it would. And as we turn the page then to chapter 3, Joel continues to speak of that final day of the Lord will come. And we're going to move quickly, I promise. Not because it's not important, but because we're going to see it again. And beyond the the, uh, rescue, now he points to a reaping that is coming. For behold, in those days and at that time when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, there's not just a restoration. Now he's going to start to talk about a vindication. I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage, Israel. God is going to vindicate his people. There's going to be a reaping and a judgment that comes because the people have scattered them among the nations. They've divided up my land and they have cast lots for my people. God is going to judge the nations for what they have done to his people and his land. You need to understand that when we talk about the day of the Lord, ultimately, it is the day of God that brings him honor and glory. It is a day of clarity for who Yahweh is, and it is accomplished by two primary means. The first is the judgment and ultimately the refining of his people Israel as they are reminded and called back to who he is and restored in repentance. And the other part that brings him glory is the judgment of sin on the nations. Those are the two prongs of the day of the Lord. Refining and restoring Israel and judging sin among the rebellious nations. And God gathers the people together and he judges them here because they've scattered, because they've divided up the land, because they've treated his people as worthless He promises judgment in Tyre and Sidon and Philistia, these people who had long been kind of the antagonistic enemies of Israel. And as you look all the way through this, again, they're his people. They've divided up his land. They've stolen his gold. They've carried away his treasures. Even the plunder of the nations should have belonged to God. We cannot get away from the fact that this all belongs to him. And the reality is that God is going to return on their heads what they dealt out to his people. And now God calls the nations to war. God says, prepare yourselves for war, verse 9. Stir up your mighty men. Let the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a warrior. God says to all the nations, bring everything. Every weak, every strong, everything that you used to use for farming, make it into a tool of war and come against me. And what what is going to happen? God is going to come and judge them. Verse 13, I'm going to put in the sickle for the harvest is ripe. Go in and tread, for the winepress is full, the vats overflow, for their evil is great. The idea is the picture of the nations gathered in all their might, in all their strength, in all their glory, in all their hatred of God. And all it is is a harvest ripe for judgment. The nations in all their collective power cannot stand against the power of the word of God. Multitudes, multitudes, verse 14, in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon are darkened. The stars withdraw their shining. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. And the heavens and the earth quake. But the Lord is a refuge to his people and a stronghold to the people of Israel. 
see in the end, there's absolute clarity over who God is. This is the one who has control over the sun and the moon and the stars. This is the one who, when he roars from Zion, no one stands. But this is the same one who is also a refuge to his people. Perfect clarity with who God is. He is either righteous judge or safe refuge. And Joel closes by talking about the restoration that is going to conclude the day of the Lord. It's a restoration first of the land. Look at verse 17. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain, and Jerusalem will be holy, and strangers shall never again pass through it. The idea that the land itself is restored with Jerusalem as a picture, a holy place set aside to the Lord. Jerusalem right now, again, a divided city, a disputed city, oftentimes a violent city. It won't always be so. In that day, the mountains will drip sweet wine and the hills will flow with milk. The stream beds of Judah will flow with water and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord and water the valley of Shittim. The idea that the land itself now produces abundantly. He speaks specifically of a particular flow that comes from the house of the Lord, a particular flow of water that comes from the temple. And you say, that sounds nice. Maybe that's the spirit. Except for the other prophets that talk about this same literal flow of water that goes from one sea behind him to one sea in front of him. Again, Joel sets the stage for these continued prophetic passages that pick up on the actual physical changes that will accompany the presence of the Lord as he dwells in Zion, in Jerusalem, as he sits on his throne, a priest on his throne. An absolutely unique time when God dwells and rules among his people. And not only is the land going to be restored, but the people are restored. Look at verse 20. Judah will be inhabited forever in Jerusalem to all generations. I will avenge their blood that I have not yet avenged. The idea that God is going to restore his people, he's going to bring them back to this restored land. But here's the question. What good is a restored land with a rebellious people? It's no good at all. All it does is start the cycle over again. Well, listen to what Ezekiel says about this time. Ezekiel 36, verse 24 I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I'll sprinkle clean water on you and you'll be clean from all your uncleanness. From all your idols, I will cleanse you. I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a, the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. You will dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you will be my people, and I will be your God. The spiritual restoration of God's people is tied to the physical restoration of God's people. Those two go hand in hand. And the final phrase of Joel holds one more remarkable promise. For the Lord dwells in Zion. The land and the people are restored when the king is there with them. And Ezekiel talks about the king ruling from his temple. Zechariah talks about the Lord ruling from his temple. Hosea reminded us of a people who return to the land and seek David, their king. There's this time coming when those who rejected and rebel are restored to worship. And that's Joel. Tragedy to triumph. That's, that's the scope of what Joel looks at. Decimated Uh, by locusts, a people in crisis that's actually worse than they can imagine, warnings of judgments that are yet to come, and ultimately to the time when God is going to extend both the fullness of his wrath and the fullness of his mercy on his people. 
and the idea that God is always faithful, that he will not destroy his people, not because they're good, not because they're smart, not even because they finally get it, but for the sake of his name. And Joel ends in triumph. Although the nations rage, God's will is accomplished. Although his people are rebellious, God's will is accomplished. Even though it looks impossible from every human way of thinking and every human perspective, God is in absolute control over every part of this and every part of human history. And one day the king will sit on his throne and every knee will bow. So what do we do? How do we respond to this? First of all, we need to consider the mercy of God. When? How long? What's he waiting for? He's waiting, Peter even says, because he is merciful. That God will not lose one of his people that he has called. And even as he waits, even now, when we wonder why he's letting it go as long as he has, the gospel continues to go out and people are saved. God's mercy is extended to you and I even today. Second, is this the end? The question that we all want to know, is this the end? Are we in the last days? Are we in the end times? Well, the author of Hebrews seemed to think so because he says in these last days, God has spoken to us in his son. Uh, The death, burial, and resurrection of Christ had eschatological end time significance. I can promise you this. We are roughly 2,000 years closer to the end than we were at that time. Do I think... We are in the end. I, I do. I think we're close. I, I, I pray that we are. But Paul prayed the same thing. And I would pray the same for us that he did, and that's in light of what is coming, not because we know the day or the hour, but because we don't know the day or the hour. Instead of asking, is this the end, how I, we should ask, how should I live in light of the end? Sober, awake, working, so that we're found faithful. And finally... He still saves. God still saves. Even in the midst of judgment, he holds out the offer and the opportunity to repent and turn. And maybe you look at your past, and it's pretty bleak. Maybe you look at your present, and it's pretty bleak. Let me remind you that this is the God who is sovereign and holy, but this is a God who is unthinkably merciful. And he doesn't want your torn clothes, and he doesn't want your sacrifices and your offerings, and he doesn't want your church attendance record. He wants a broken heart, lamenting and weeping over your sin, that comes to him full of faith and desperation and dependence on who he is and what he's done. And to that, he promises restoration. Let's pray. Lord, you're good and merciful because you've given us another day, another day for your creation to glorify you, another day for your people to praise you, another day for sinners to repent. So Lord, even as we anticipate the resurrection and celebrating Easter, put that message of the gospel on our lips. Remind us that there is a future that you hold in your hands, a time when you will consummate all of human history in a way that brings you glory and honor, in a way that judges sin, and in a way that restores and perfects your people. What a remarkable God we serve. Amen.